know where I'm lurking. Yeah, can none of y'all mirror me back? Yeah, hear me rap, it's like hand G rapping is prime. I'm young. <laughs> Welcome to a very special Ferrari Nice. I am one half of your racing team, the Navigator, and here is the Deportago of our I'm racing driving. team. You're driving, baby. <laughs> Katie Walsh. I don't let me behind the wheel. Katie Walsh. I'm Blake Howard. This is Katie Walsh. This is in the Miami Nice feed, if you're listening, obviously, our modern man, Horny campfire and Katie, today's Ferrari nice is pretty special. Ferrari nice, baby. <laughs> we finally This is this is a big one. This is a big just, big deal. Just a little bit of a gigantic deal for the both of us. Uh one Michael Mann coming up on the show, Katie Walsh. This has been in the works for months. Months. Like I um, don't, I I did, and and I didn't even think that it was going to happen. Me neither. I didn't believe. <laughs> uh, look, Michael Mann's team, his amazing team, um, Mara and team at IDPR are such incredible and generous supporters of the show, and we've been trying to make this happen for some time. Largely, I think it probably was a bit scary because. In Australia, Ferrari is being released by Village Roadshow Films. Um, like, you know, it's an international distribution arm. In, in the States, it's Neon. So the, it's much more structured. But I was here, like, dangling until the 6th of December, waiting to see this goddamn movie that people had been seeing all over the world. And I was like, oh, for the love of God, can I please see it? He's like, I mean, I don't have to say it to anyone who's listening to this show, but I was so anticipating a, a Michael Mann movie in the cinema again. I finally saw it and the, the team worked magic for us to talk to the great one. And so mm -hmm. we got to speak to him. So I don't want to talk. I don't think we need to talk too much other than to say, ladies and gentlemen, your horniest Michael Mann podcasters sat down with the man himself. It, it made me so happy to see Katie Walsh talk to Michael Mann. <laughs> It was one of the happiest moments I've ever had in podcasting. Aww. I remember I remember seeing Travis Woods talk to Paul Thomas Anderson. And I had the same experience. Aww. I was my face was so happy just watching Katie talk to Michael Mann. It was the best thing ever. So it's it's it was a huge treat. So why wait? Just why don't you guys listen? We'll come and check in with you at the end of the interview. But um, we cover a lot of great topics, um, as you would have read in the you know the pre-show notes. We do get to talk about Miami Vice and we do get to talk about upcoming stuff with Heat 2. And we do talk a lot about the absolutely sensational Ferrari, which Katie and I both adore. Um, and we hope that you go and see it. And it is not, it's not any kind of minor man in my conception. It's sensational. I can't wait to see it again and again and again. It has so mm -hmm. much to offer. And so we, we cover lots of great stuff. So we hope that you enjoy um and you'll see what it's like for me to have my balls busted by my hero and <laughs> it's the best thing it's a it's a christmas present for the ages so have a listen guys <laughs> enjoy katie walsh and i talking to michael man vroom vroom
Hello, Mr. Hi. Man. How are you, sir? I'm good, Blake. How are you? I'm um, excellent. I'm Katie. It's a pleasure to meet you. Good to meet you too. So, firstly, it's really, really nice to go back into a cinema and to watch one of your films that isn't the many repertory amazing screenings. Katie was lucky enough. She's an LA native and she was lucky enough to see what she called a religious experience of your 70 millimeter personalized print of Manhunter very recently. There's yes. lots of, uh, so it's so nice to see you and congratulations on the film. It was absolutely outstanding. It's great to talk to you again. Great. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So I want to start with what I think is, you know, one of the things that I think typifies your films is these amazing sequences that pair music and action and time. And, and I think that just off the top of my head, a couple of them are the fantastic Sam Cooke opening sequence of Ali. Um, uh, obviously the final 12 minutes of Last of the Mohicans, which I've talked to you about before, but I want to talk to you about like time is almost like a sacrament in your films. And I feel like you make that more literal in Ferrari than ever before, because we get the incredible Maserati time trial scene. And then it leads into obviously the Amelia Amelia. And I just wanted to talk to you about, I know you've said before, like the perfection that you impose upon yourself on these scenes, but I feel like the work that you did with Pietro Scalia, who's the great editor of like things like JFK and Black Hawk Down, I feel like you two had such an amazing intuition of how to keep action and this sort of percussive momentum going in these huge set pieces. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I am just blown away by those scenes. I keep rolling them in my mind over and over again since seeing the film. By usually posing very difficult problems in, in front of myself. So the, uh, you know, the, first of all, Pietro Scalia was a fantastic editor. Uh, his editing of all the dialogue scenes is impeccable. The uh, uh, he just intuited and knew what I was going after, as well as working with all the materials that I gave him because I do a lot of pre-planning. But the text and what the performances speak for themselves, and I'm using my selected takes. And there's some of those scenes, like the dining room table debate when Enzo asks Lara for to sign over half her shares to him. Uh, I, I don't think I think I may have made a couple of changes back in in October of last year, and that was it. Uh, everything is uh, the same to stay absolutely the same. Whereas typically, I think I re-edited and re-edited. Uh, he um, so he's he's quite quite terrific. Uh, there's another editor, John Valerio, who worked on a lot of the uh, driving scenes with me, and uh, uh, who also did fantastic fantastic work. The the mountain scenes, by the way, were all shot in one day, but we had a we have a, a necessity. We had a short schedule. A movie like this would probably be seventy five to eighty days, and I had to shoot in in, in fifty eight. Um, the but the you know no, listen, it all comes from it all comes from analysis and dramatic uh, in intent. And I asked myself, the director, much like an actor, ask himself as an actor. What's my action? What do I want to accomplish? Where do I want, how do I want the scene to impact on audience? And there, there's two answers to that. And the, 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 the first is, we're talking about the driving scene, the first is that I wanted the uh, maximum uh, uh, irresolution 
all the way driving to the end of the film. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with Piero? Is he going to be acknowledged by his father, who he needs? And then all the other conflicts that are ongoing within this three months, uh, you know, kind of crucible of of, uh, of very passionate issues amongst within these tempestuous relationships. And so the design was classicism in the uh, way the dramatic scenes are realized in terms of the palette of the rooms and the colors and how the camera, how, the, how I'm using the camera to, uh, to, to drive the spoken, uh, the spoken word as powerfully as possible. And in some instances, the issues that are raised are resolved with the racing. And for that, I wanted the exact opposite. I wanted to set up a real oppositional sense of every time you get cut to the racing, it's these violently red cars with an agitation that is has a double purpose. It's experientially what you feel when you are racing, when you're, you know, it, it's, it's the milliseconds in, in the present tense are agitated your focus is always on the next thing and you have to maintain that kind of a zen focus so but so that was the reason why there's two very different kinds of filmmaking in in, in the movie i wanted to ask about um the character of enzo because i thought a lot about neil mccauley when i was watching ferrari you know they're both incredibly driven professionals who are putting together a crew of men to do something incredibly dangerous, possibly courting death. Um, Did you see similarities between Enzo and the other protagonists of your films? Um, Well, only only in the sense that this question came up because I don't normally think like this. This is (laughs) the beautiful work that you people do. I don't want to think about this. But then the question about commonality uh, why am I attracted to certain kinds of characters? Uh, inevitably, comes up. I think I think it has to has to do with uh, I'm interested in people who are aspirational. Or they're trying to do something, or they're trying to escape from somewhere, or they're or they're trying to accomplish something, or they have a dream they want to manifest. They have uh, imposed upon themselves uh, a responsibility, like in the case of Muhammad Ali. He knows he's the heavyweight champion of the world, and that he has to. He will effectively represent something to Black America. What is what is it that he should be representing? And that is, is a yeah. voice of discovery for him, which he finds in a rumble in the jungle, and it broadens out into into he's the representational figure to all those rising up from below. So it's a quest for something. So. Um, I'm not interested in people who don't want to do anything in plastic <laughs> circumstances. <laughs> that wouldn't make for a very interesting movie. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I know Katie and I both adore Penelope Cruz, and you called her, I, I love your quote about it. You said she's a force of primeval power and uninhibitedness. And I think that you did a bit of a magic trick here, sir, with it's easy to look up what happens with these characters, but I haven't been so on the edge of my seat, not only for the peril of the racing, but for genuinely having no clue 
what the outcome of this movie was going to be with these characters. Like I had at a certain point in the movie, I'm like, I have no idea where this is going. I, you could tell me any number of endings and I wouldn't expect it, but can you talk about working with Penelope Cruz specifically? Because her, her job as Laura is so amazing and her reactions in the movie are almost as unpredictable as the racing scenes. The, um, you know, for me, the, 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 Troy wrote this beautiful screenplay and absolutely did the, you know, created the golden heart of this thing. And, um, but it didn't really have an ending and I had to find the ending. And when I decided the ending was the, uh, this is after Troy passed away in 2009. Uh, I decided the ending was the, the final confrontation between Lara and Enzo in which she says that, uh, she has a wish and making it not a demand it's five times as compelling it's it's the wish means you enzo have to search yourself for an authentic response okay which he does and his response is correct it is it is it is the authentic thing to, for him to do to uh, not give piero the name ferrari until laura is dead okay and that's the penultimate ending then the ultimate ending for me was um was was in in a, on a parallel track at the same time he fully acknowledges in ways he has not done before piero as his son and that total yeah. acknowledgement then is the end of the movie so once i decided that was the end of the movie and that's what everything has to drive towards i reverse engineered it back into parts of the screenplay and how i was directing it to maximize where i could irresolution to keep everything irresolved uh there's a there's a pseudo resolution we think in the in the media media that it's going to affect the financial fortunes of the company and rolled up in there somehow as maybe some of the issues but you know amongst all of the contesting lena lardy piero lara and uh uh and it, it, it's a pseudo resolution because the Mia Media produces a triumph for, for Ferrari and a horrible tragedy at the same time. And so it's a misdirection into having you think, oh, here's how the movie's going to resolve. And it's not how it resolves. So that then became um, that then became the design or the logic, the narrative logic for how to analyze and direct all the scenes for example the condemnation when laura condemns him that he was responsible for tino's death because he was distracted by his other family um and uh you know it was okay i have to make the condemnation so total that we have no idea how this is going to resolve what's what's going to happen um that's the so that's kind of that's my internal thinking about something about the question you asked one of the things that we love um, when we talk about your films and especially what our the fans of our show love when we talk about your films are the sort of very mature adult relationships that we see, the romances that are both romantic but also pragmatic. And it's interesting that in this film you have both Laura as this, you know, their marriage is sort of a business partnership, um, but also, you know, lusty as well. and. Um, he has this sort of softer relationship with Lena as well. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
how you approach depicting these kinds of romances um, in your films and in Ferrari specifically? Um, you know, first of all, I life is complex. Your life is complex. My life is complex. Uh, <laughs> relationships are complex. Blake's life is simple. We'll leave him aside. <laughs> but the the uh and so to me i'm more affected and and, and, and by the potential the powerful potential of um of complex you know co complex conflicted uh impulses from within that don't have a resolution. In fact, they're not even sometimes contradictions because they're not anything as symmetrical as a con as a contradiction. They're just oppositional. There's two, maybe three, and and they're all true, and they're all functioning simultaneously in different areas. And really, in life, we don't really resolve them, except in movies, they get resolved in usually a two-hour time frame. But right. in real life, they don't. We carry these oppositional forces within us. And so as years go by, I've become more interested in can I, can I create uh, uh, something that resonates like real life, because that's going to be more interesting to me. And I think also more, more, more powerful. And so that's the, that was there in that in the relationship between Enzo and Lara. Um, in five years after these events, 1962, the, um, the two things two things happen. Lara slips and falls into a canal. Somebody, uh, you know, retrieves her and calls Enzo and said, "Lara just fell into and Lara just fell into the canal." Enzo Enzo says, why, "You know, why'd you pull her out?" Okay. <laughs> and at the same time, within a month, his engineers come in. The entire engineering staff, the world famous. Automotive, automotive engineers and say you have to keep Lara out of the factory because she's interfering with everything she's making us crazy and he says or 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 we'll have to we'll have to rethink our position here as says you don't have to rethink your position here because you're all fired and he fired <laughs> his entire engineering staff oh my god destroys a season of racing all out of solidarity with Lara so yeah the idea of two people who can't live together, can't live apart, he's insecure, aspirational, driving into the future. She is totally confident, but she's imprisoned in this, like, in, in this uh, silo of grief and morbidity over the death of Dino, but mm -hmm. still holding on to some of the vivacity when he met her in 1922 in Turin and said she was La Donna Buffa, which means kind of a card. And she was she was uh, vivacious. She was a cabaret singer, and that spirit that's still alive somewhere. It may be an ember, but it's alive somewhere in Lara, who's 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 invalided in the 1970s, and she chooses a wallpaper that brings back Turin of the early 20s in her room that she lived in for the last two years of her life. Penelope Cruz and I walked into the real bedroom and saw that and it took our breath away because we knew, you know, this whole history of who she was. And then, you know, her doctor uh, was still alive, showed us letters that Enzo wrote the last two years of her life that are romantic, they're, they're amorous. 
And at the same time, they would be like great buttheads. So, you know, these are the wonderful complexities that make us human beings. And they're, they're, they're not symmetrical. They're not, they're not, um, you know, formed. We only make them convenient and abstract them into these kind of mathematical components when we write screenplays. And so the challenge here was, can you get this real life dualities or op uh, forces in opposition within people and between these two people and uh, you know make it make it emotionally tangible for audiences and that's that was the um, that was the challenge and why it was so interesting yeah. um i don't know if I, that's question but that's yeah <laughs> it's fascinating um moving away from ferrari a little bit we you know our podcast is about miami vice and we've been continued chronicling your work as Miami Nice podcast is uh, currently what Katie and I host together, Michael. So this is uh, one oh, heat great. minute continues digging into modern man, Miami Vice specifically, and lots of conversations. Lots about of collateral, collateral lots of some black hat. Yeah. Um, congratulations on the release of the, the new disc. Um, but we feel like we've sort of just been a part of this zeitgeist of a younger generation that has discovered Miami Vice and hailed it as a masterpiece. And I recently in the last summer hosted a screening of the film in LA at the American Cinematheque. And it was the first time, like, I think most of the audience had ever seen it on the big screen because they were too young to see it. Right. And um, so, you know, it's like moviegoers in their twenties who, are really obsessed with this movie and have become, you know, they've reappraised it. And obviously we are too. We've talked about it for like almost a hundred episodes over the course of three years. But um, I'm just curious your thoughts on what it's like to sort of see both Miami Vice and even Black Hat, like kind of be reappraised by younger audiences when they weren't embraced necessarily at the time. Well, you know, it's very gratifying um, because it's just gratifying. There's, um, I mean, I'm obviously serious about what I do and, and, and try to build in, in depth of my own experience, my own perceptions and, and some of the, the parts of the world and you know, experience I've had in parts of the world that these things take place in. And, um, so there's, there's layers, but everything I do is designed for the big screen. And so you can't really, um, you know, get the impact for better or worse, unless you're seeing it in cinema on a big screen. And, uh, uh, you know, a million years ago, when I was a film student, a friend of mine was doing a series of interviews. Uh, he, was, he was a friend who was at the Sorbonne, and he was doing uh, interviews for some French film magazine with Stanley Kubrick, and it was just before 2001 came out. And I went along on a couple of these and I asked at one point, I, I asked, I said, Stanley, what, you know, 2001 is opening in a Cinerama on Old Compton Street, which was a huge underground cinema at the time. Um, you know, what's, wh wh where are the best seats? And he said, well, there's only four. And it, it's row K, 16 and 17, or row you know, L, 16 or 17. And what he, what he meant was that if you sat in those four seats, the edges of the screen edged into your peripheral vision and the imaging, sound imaging was perfect. 
and we're in a much better place today because of, of uh, everything like Dolby Vision and, mm-hmm. and, and Dolby Atmos where, you know, there's more places. But that's where you're making, that's, you're making the, 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 there's a radical difference in perception when you are actually seeing it at the scale of which it was intended. Um, it's why, it's why television is so text dependent. It's a simple, it's a very, very simple perceptual logic. Mm-hmm. If you have a all screen and you have audio is the same, everything is big, just text dependent. And that's mm-hmm. not cinema. Yeah, that makes sense. And, um, yeah, but what you're talking about is gratifying, particularly on uh, Miami Miami Vice. I have different reactions to my to all my films. There's some sequences. Some films are, you know, the most part I'm satisfied with. But there'll be sequences that stand out, like the beginning of Ali, the first that opening ten minute montage of Ali is, is something that uh, you know I would never never alter or change. And there's sequences in. Uh, this intense romance between Colin Farrell and Gong Li that, uh, you know, are just are, uh, are inspired by other, by things that are unusual. The, um, the uh, particularly the house that was built in Atlant- Atlantide, which is outside Montevideo, which we duplicated things I had seen in Havana. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I think that romance really comes through, especially as we've watched it again and again and again. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, so stunning and um, really... And that, uh, like we scouting yeah. in Racina, uh, which is a favela in Rio. We didn't shoot in Brazil, but we wound up, you know, but there was graffiti on the walls. And then we copied that. I saw that graffiti and it really spoke to me. So I put that on the walls behind Jose Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Played, by, played by John Ortiz, which was shot in the Dominican Republic. Um, mm-hmm. And then, then we only shot for three days in Ciudad Leste, which is the triple frontier. And we had planned to shoot for three weeks there. So that was then, you know, and then all the, all the, um, I know we had, during the shooting of that, we had Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Wilma, and a tropical storm. So it was, it was wild. I mean, yeah. Oh, you wow. can see it in the sky, the sort of roiling purple sky. You can tell that the barometric pressure is dropping and things are stirring. Well, what we can be happy about, because we haven't had a chance to speak to you yet, we can be happy that, well, we know that Seattle del Este, you can go and shoot there for many weeks, maybe months, when you go and shoot Heat 2, which we are, uh, which we ravenously consumed. We spoke to your great co-author, Meg Gardner, about it. Um we're just so excited about the prospect of uh, you making this as a, a big screen movie. I think it's uh, we can't wait, and particularly a lot of the a lot of the one eight minute fans are out there talking about how much that Miami Vice and, and it reminds is getting them even more excited about the prospect of so many tendrils of the story of Heat Two. So we're excited. Uh, you bet. I plan to. Uh, you know, there's something that was so strange and surreal about this. This place on this butte over the Paraná River, um, about five miles from where uh, uh, the mission was shot, by the way, uh, the Iguazu Falls. And um, uh, it's absolutely surreal with this crazy population of, uh, of um, 
you know, Lebanese, Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwanese, um, the, the children of Nazi criminals who fled to Paraguay. I mean, it is completely bizarre. And there's something that's very attractive to me about states of nature, where you're pre-Hobbesian environments, where, where, where what you want to do and what you accomplish is dependent completely on and your efficiency and your ability to make the thing happen. There, there is no jurisprudence. There's no external authority. It's a, it really is a state of nature. And Ciudad del Este is kind of like that. The only rule in Ciudad del Este that everybody adheres to, there's no street crime. So all the dead <laughs> bodies show up because somebody did something. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's fascinating. We had some real uh, adventures there. It took us about six months to make it reasonable, reasonably safe to shoot there. And uh, so we're gonna you know, do it again on, on Heat 2. We can't wait, I'm so excited. Well, we've got to wrap up. Michael, thank you so much. It's so great to talk to you. It's been such right. a treat. Um, we're such huge admirers of yours in, in an ongoing way. And just thank you so much for your time. We know how busy you are. Congratulations on the film. And yeah, just uh, thank you to the whole team for making this happen. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you, it was great talking to you too. Thanks, for, thanks so much. was it talking to the man it was scary right like like wait yeah. just waiting for it to happen it was a scary chat to like i mean the th like we talked about this a little bit in the intro but like it took us months to land this interview and like thank you to mara and the team at id thank you to neon. claire at neon yeah, who claire like read yeah. my email in august <laughs> or something like the second i heard that this movie was being, you know, picked up by Neon and then also to the, Tina Ginsburg Libby, who like truly moved mountains for us. But like, yeah, it was literally us just being like, can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? And uh, it paid off. Yeah, but it was so there and it's, you know, it's it's scary because we only have 25 minutes and you're just yeah. like, how are we supposed to like fit? everything we want to say and ask into that short amount of time and there's like 10 publicists watching you <laughs> 10 publicists all with their cameras off going these idiots uh yeah but so I, but, but I, it was great and 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 it is intimidating obviously and there's just so much build up to it so mm. um you know a funny story is that i lost my laptop charger like an hour and a half before this interview and i literally like raced to the apple store and was like get me your chargers i don't care if it costs a million dollars like i just like raced and got a charger so i but it, i almost was glad that i was like not sitting around and stewing yeah. <laughs> over how the interview was gonna go like i had to just like get ready and go and then you're like in the moment yeah it's it's also that i had this experience i sat down the night before to take a few notes because with every interview we're extremely prepared. And the problem is like the normal way that, you know, I think both Katie and I do stuff is we sit down, we have a few things that we want to ask that are purely out of like our interests of a film or a filmmaker. And then you do a lot of research about like different interviews. And the thing is when you sit down to look at the interviews that Michael Mann has done recently, we've read them all. 
Some of them we've actually interviewed the interviewers on our show. I know. It's like, I know every line of these things. I read them three times. It's like, what do I want to ask? No, most of the, it's, 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 a, it's a level of relaxation and comfort as a chronicler of Michael Mann that we both are now. It's like, I'm really comfortable and confident to talk to him. And I just hope mm -hmm. that I can, what I was hoping was that we could get across. I just think, you know, there are some scenes in man movies that we talk about, you know, great montages and sequences and those things. And like, I genuinely think, you know, the end of the last of the Mohicans is one, but the beginning of Ali, which I was trying to talk about, there's like three or four scenes that are just the most unbelievable constructions of editing and sound and pace and intercutting between different locations in this movie that you're like, oh, he, this guy has such a toolkit. And I just, if there's anything that I can say, it's, I just wanted to get some of that across to him before we dug into some of those other questions that Katie asked and we asked together and, uh, and it was just so great. And yeah, like, like, I hope you guys heard, um, you know, Katie and Michael complex individuals, Blake is simple. <laughs> uh, like I couldn't be like, it made my heart sore. Like there's no, it's, he did that with love and, uh, yeah, um, yeah, and, no, that was, that was, uh, I see you. I see you. You know, I was like, I was like, I know, I know you are well enough. I can bust your balls here. This is fun. And I was like, yeah, and this is, you can't, it doesn't get better than that. I, that that's yeah. the thing. Like if lots of friends have reached out friends of the show and I'm like, Michael busted my balls in the interview. I can't wait for you to listen. Like, <laughs> I just like, I can't wait for you to listen. It's so good. It's the best. It's interesting. He's an interesting interviewer interview because he doesn't, he sort of answers the question that he wants to answer and not necessarily what you asked. Yes. And, so, there, are certain, and there are certain things, certain lines, certain things that you would hear, you would recognize. He's got a couple of points that he really wants to get across in conveying stuff. But what I really liked is when he went off book, so to speak, or off script or off yeah. beaten track of things that he may have said previously. And we do get a couple of those. So it was really exciting. And, um, and for us, you know, talking about Miami Vice and him talking about those elements and, and particularly, uh, you know, like we, I, I saw both of our eyes light up when he was just like everything that happens in Cuba, you know, I'm completely happy with him. We're like, so are we, <laughs> so right. Are we, no, he, yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm just glad that we like imparted to him that this is happening. I mean, him, she has to know, but like just to underline it and let him know that like this younger generations are embracing this movie wholeheartedly. Uh, it's a good thing to just pass that message along. Yes. And so as you guys are listening to this, um, you know, thank you so much again for your ongoing support. This is like an early Christmas present from us to you. And thank you so much to our patrons and discord fans who all lost their minds collectively before we shared it publicly and, and were so wonderful, but we actually have an additional thing um, that we can surprise you all with an incredible actor, Gabrielle Leone, who plays Dipotago, um, mm -hmm. the, the playboy racer that stars in this movie and is also cast in Netflix's upcoming center series is also coming up on the show on Ferrari and I. So we get to talk to him a great interview, which is coming up. He's an absolute sweetie pie, Katie, and I had such a great time talking to him. So we, we hope that you uh, enjoy that. That'll be coming up in a few days. Lots of great stuff. Yeah. Um, we're ending the year on a massive high for all things Miami nice to talk to the man. It's like, uh, it's, it's a pretty surreal time because you, Katie, when you think about it, 
if we keep doing this show, which we absolutely do, there is a conceivable time that there is a Heat 2 movie that's going to come out and we're going to be talking about it. <laughs> I'll be like 50 years old. <laughs> <laughs> we're in our 50s. This guy's still still getting horny about Michael Mann on podcasts. (laughs) Yeah, we are. Um, So, um, but yeah, so we hope you enjoy that as well. Um, But yeah, this has been an amazing, we've had another amazing year talking all things Michael Mann and it's been really special. We've had amazing conversations, but you know, when I shared that screenshot, I, you know, we had such beautiful reactions. from The reactions were so sweet, like truly, truly uh love love you guys and thank you so much for you know being happy for us you know that yeah. just like feels really good <laughs> it feels good when all your friend, like you know uh, uh, some of our other friends you know drew and charles from light the fuse spoke to john woo i know unreal which they've been trying for years to make happen um mm-hmm. and and that happened and then we got to speak to michael mann and it feels like a real it's so great when you know the um people who know how dedicated you are to an art and artists um, and, and different things, you get to, you know, achieve a goal and a big goal for us. At some point we'd always sort of joke. Katie's like, we're never talking to Michael Mann on this show. This is the silly <laughs> show. I'm like, no, we're talking. Is to that Michael. what I said? Yeah. You're like, we're not talking to Michael Mann. I'm like, we are, we are going to get him to talk to him. And I feel like hold the line, hold the line. We can do it. Hold fast, <laughs> hold fast. So yeah, if you're listening, if you're listening to one heat minute in this week, the great Henson caper, which Ethan Warren has produced all about Jim Henson is ending. Um, uh, podcaster and commander with an interview with Peter Weir is coming up. Michael Mann is on the show. And then we're having, I mean, what a way to close out your year, Blake. Close, close out the year. And uh, Katie and I will have a little break um, in January. You've got one more episode of us talking to Gabrielle Leone. And then we're, uh, we'll be out until kind of like late January, February. And then we'll be back in the, in the swing. But yeah, thank you so much, partner, for uh, another fantastic year doing this show that started out as like a, a pandemic fever dream. And now we're talking to Michael Mann. I can't believe it's still going. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Only because I mean I can't I can believe it, but like I just you know I it, it's it's amazing that like that we're still finding people and um, to talk to and that we still have um, things to say and and you know it's it's great it's uh, just in terms of like what we thought it was going to be from the beginning. Of we course thought it was going to be a fifteen minute flash <laughs> yeah. in the pan, nothing. I know, and it's now turned into like a huge part going forward of what like everything we do here at one minute it's like miami nice is like it's a brand <laughs> in and of itself like, it's like it, it, it is what it is um but look thank you and uh we hope you guys but enjoyed we it we couldn't have kept going without oh my people God. loving what we do and like responding to us and so we love all the feedback that we get and the um you our, know even our if crew, you, our crew yeah. our crew doing no context reviews of our shows in collages <laughs> And just engaging with us and watching how our Discord explodes after we do a Miami Nice episode, just talking about all the sorts of things that we cover, like silly or insightful. Um, it's so gratifying. It's like the yeah, best, it's, it's like the greatest group chat of all time, talking exclusively about all the things that you love. So it's amazing. And I'm so, so happy. Yeah. Thank you guys. And um, I'm, I hope you enjoyed this chat with Michael Mann insane to say that.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.